0: Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Simi and I's first episode of Boofy and Bubbles with a guest. And today we are just thrilled to have Nadia Hussein on with us. Nadia and I have personally been friends for about a decade now. And throughout all this time, I've truly had the privilege of seeing firsthand the incredible work that she's been doing. Not only is Nadia a mom of two adorable little boys but she's a senior campaign director at Moms Rising and the co-founder of an organization named Bodhi. Nadia was also just recently elected into the Board of Education in the township of Bloomingdale, New Jersey. And this was an incredibly historic win as Nadia is actually the first Bangladeshi American woman to have been elected into the Board of Education, not just in the township of Bloomingdale, but within the entire state of New Jersey. So thank you, Nadia, for taking the time out of your insanely busy schedule to be the first guest on this little podcast of ours.
1: Thank you so much, Timmy and Dia. And I am I can't I can't express like how happy I am to actually be your first guest. It's very, it's a good honor. So it is momentous.
2: It is so momentous. And in the spirit of and Bubbles, you know, we're really thrilled and excited to have you to be able to center this time on your lived experience. And just as a woman in the South Asian American diaspora, taking some time to shed light on the complexities of our individual and collective reality. So thank you again for being here. I echo what Dia said, really thrilled to have you. And we thought that we could just open up this time and ask you like who is the Nadia that is here in this moment with
1: us right now? Well, I'm. I would say the Nadia who's here is the Nadia I never expected to be. I dreamed I'd be, but I didn't think it would happen. And um, that what that means is, you know, I'm. I feel like I'm so lucky to be doing the work I do, whether it be activism, whether it be even my paid work, whether it, um, being the mother of my children. And I'm not just saying that for like, to sound cool. Um, it's true. Um, as, as as crazy and difficult sometimes and challenging as a journey that parenthood is, especially today, um, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm still very grateful for it. And I was thinking about this uh, the other day, I was, I was telling my husband, you know, people say, oh, I just want to be happy. Right. Like it would be great. Like everybody's like, oh, we should just be happy. Or like, what can I do to be happy? And I always think I'm like, you know, being happy is a very lofty goal because no one's happy all the time. Like that's just not like normal or I think feasible, even if you do have a great life. And and I was like, you know, I think what to me, what happiness means is living on my own terms. So I'd say that the Nadia who's in this space is somebody who has lived on their own terms, which doesn't mean it's always been easy or it's perfect or everything turns out exactly how I want but i have come further than i ever thought is imaginable and i am um, i have to say that that makes yeah. me happy i am i am i am lived on my own terms to this day and even if like the world turns upside down and mm-hmm. things aren't perfect i can at least say that much i really
2: appreciate this idea of living on your own terms was that something that you always kind of had throughout your life, even through your childhood? Or how did you get here? How did you get to Nadia, the woman who defines the
1: life and the way in which you live it? I'll be honest. I feel like as a human being, it it might be difficult just to live on your own terms. And and I will also caveat that by saying that that sometimes there are situations and things beyond our control, right, in our environment. So there can even be, let's say, a privilege of wanting to live on your own terms, right, and having access to that. If you, whether that be um, like is systemic racism working against you, right? It's it's like, are you a woman? Um, where are you living? Like your access to wealth, your access to economic privileges. I mean, your location. So there's like, a. I, I also want to caveat that when I say living on your own terms, I don't mean there's like an eat, pray, love kind of self-help thing, right? Or like any kind of advice. I can only speak about my own personal sense of what that means. And it's subjective, uh, it, that, that subjective experience of my own life as I interpret it. So I do want to, I just want to make sure like, again, last thing I want to do is sound like a freaking like self-help book because they don't work. Um, but I will say, you know, I think if you let's say uh, with all of those things considered, if you are able enough to like, if there's an option to live on your own terms, I think it's, it might be hard to do that anyway, but I do, I will say honestly, as being a Brown woman, being someone who is South Asian American, growing up with immigrant parents, uh, you know, being Bangladeshi, being a Bangladeshi background, Bangladeshi Muslim background, that living on your own terms for me was a massive challenge. And I feel like there's two parts to it. There's one part that's just my personality. And I was talking to my sister about this other day, funny enough. And I was like, you know, because my sister is like a doctor and she plays, like she plays the piano beautifully. And she was like the auditorian, like she was like, all the, and she has like three masters or something. Right. She was like, all the things things I couldn't be like, I'm like all the disappointments I made my parents go through. She made sure they didn't, I guess. <laughs> I'm, telling her, I'm like, and I love a really great relationship with my sister. And I told her, I'm like, you know, for me, like I couldn't help sometimes living on my own terms because it wasn't like, oh, I chose not to go to medical school. Or I chose not to go to law school. I couldn't do it because I just didn't have the grades. I didn't have the focus. I didn't have, you know, I just like I disappointed my parents beside myself. Like no matter how hard I worked, I was just going to disappoint them. It just wasn't going to happen. I am not, I was not one of those people that was going to get like a Harvard law degree and then decided to change my mind and open like, I don't know, like a cooking school. Right. Like I was not going to be one of those people. Like I was just, I might, maybe I'll open the cooking school. I'm definitely not getting into Harvard. And so I feel like I was like, I feel like I was like tripping and falling through life. And, um, even if I was trying hard when it came to my parents' expectations on myself, um, and there's very weighted expectations of this immigration ex- experience of their lived trauma in this country um, and, and trying to deliver on something to them. Right. And, and, I, and I, so I feel like, yes, my personality as I am, I sometimes can't help but be myself um, or it's like sometimes it's just not an option. I'm just myself, like like an elephant barging through a room. It's just happening. It's like a force of nature. The other part of it, though, is about the intentional part of it for myself, where there were choices I made where I I said, you know, this is not the easy choice. This is not the choice that's popular with my parents. This is not the choice that has a clear outcome, but it's the right choice for me. And maybe I don't know the end goal. Like, let's say I I started, I got into a great a graduate program somewhere, right? Not saying that gives you all the answers, but okay, it's a three-year program. I'm starting in this field. I'm going to finish this, this field, get my degree and do that work. As we know, the way that our society is working right now with student loans and our economy and our generation. That's not always the case like it was in the past, but still there can at least seem like there's some kind of path in front of you, right? And and I think for myself, I didn't always know what that looked like, that path looked like. And, and I still took, the leaps, I guess you could say, um, and of course, it horrified my parents completely. Like completely, they were just like, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like, oh my god! Like hysterics, hysterics, hysterics!" But I, you know, I, and I didn't put it this way. It's like I didn't know if it was going to be okay. I didn't know that I was going to. If if there was no guaranteed success, there were there. I didn't know what the light looked like at the end of the tunnel. I didn't know where the road led. I just knew, know that I put one foot in front of the other and that I always stayed true to myself like what like did this work for me even if it wasn't perfect even if it didn't make everybody happy even if I didn't know the outcome I still went forward and so it was a combination of me just being like my 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 elephant my mom calls me hostini which is in bengali means elephant woman and that's like because I just feel like I sometimes go smashing through, I feel like I sometimes go smashing through life as I just who I am like unfortunately I can't help myself but then there's another part of me that is very intentional and takes those leaps even though I know that I'm not always going to land on my feet
2: I love that I wonder if there's some like South Asian norm where parents name you after an animal because I know growing up my parents used to call me the word for grasshopper in Punjabi because I was always like jumping around and dancing and moving around so like the elephant, the grasshopper. Dia, I don't
0: know if you were called any... No, my mom only called me... She did call me animal names, but <laughs> more when she pissed at me. So like Nadia will know she would call me Bador, which is yeah. monkey, right? So <laughs> be like, Bador, man, like, you know, you monkey child. Like, and, you know, so her, that that worked for her when she was she was annoyed with me. She would definitely bring out that
1: animal sling on me. Um, well, my mom, I mean, when my mom got... Cre- I have to say the Bengalis, like... Are very creative yes. with their insults, right? So one thing my mom said when she was really mad, and I'm not going to repeat it because I feel like it might offend so <laughs> Who knows? But like it's it's actually, the literal translation is you're skin, you're the skin of the devil, <laughs> and I just like love that. I just love that, and even like even one of the threats is like I'm going to skin you, which I know would like I know would, like put off all these alarms right for CPS in America, <laughs> but it's like a very common thing. To use, apparently, well, I think also
0: though right. I feel like it got to a point where we would laugh. Like I I, I remember getting to an age, and I don't know when this age was. It might've been like junior high or high school where I I just remember one day, because it was just something you were just so, because our parents just said it in certain ways where we knew it wasn't dangerous, right? To set off alarms that it would upset us. But I remember one time with my mom, I literally just started cracking up and she started laughing. And ever since that day, she like stopped like saying these things to me because she realized like, this kid's just gonna start laughing at me. And I was like, Cracking up laughing. And I'm like, Mom, like this is, I mean, this worked for like maybe the first 15 years of my life, but like it's really not gonna, not gonna
1: work anymore. It's not gonna, not. Yeah. I I will say I'm not emotionally damaged from being called the skin of the dead. But when we,
2: so what I heard from you, Nadia, is just, you know, being the elephant that you are, you really, your own path and you use the word intention, which I find so powerful. Um, and it seems to me as someone who's like just kind of getting to know you, that you live in a place of care. So like how you show up as a mama, how you show up in your work professionally, it's really all about cultivating care and driving towards like civic engagement and justice. And I'd love to know like what drove you to that? So you talked about kind of the lived trauma of being raised by immigrant parents, you know, what it meant to be a brown South Asian American child and woman in this country. What We all have some of those experiences being brown in this country, but what drove you particularly to kind of cultivate um, the portfolio of work that you, that you sit in today?
0: And before Nadia even answers that, I'll say that when Nadia and I had met, it was actually at a conference where she was going to be speaking, and I was at this conference too. And that's kind of what cultivated our friendship, just because in the couple days that we were out in Vegas and, you know, we got to know each other, I just saw the passion that she had and the drive that she had. At that point, I didn't know anything about her life story, the trajectory of her life at that point how she got to where she was. And it was just so motivational for me also as an individual, because I was more in the corporate world at that point, trying to leave the corporate side of things and trying to do more of the things that I do now. And it was, that was like one of the first times that I felt like I met someone my age, like in our generation that had a similar background and a similar upbringing with like what Nadia was saying before, right? Like with our Parents' expectations. I was also that child who never would have gotten into Harvard or Stanford or Princeton. Like my mom didn't even bank on that, right? Um, but you we we are raised with a certain type of expectations, right? And then you go into this whole model minority thing, but it's this whole other conversation that we would go into. But I just wanted to say that before Nadia even answers that, because I think that's just so imperative for people even listening to just really understand that everything Nadia does is with such passion because she just believes in her work. Like, I've never seen Nadia, whether it be at a job she's working or whether it be a cause that she's standing up for or rooting for helping without good reason behind it. Like, I've just never seen that out of her. Um, So, I mean, I'm just excited to see what her future has in store so I
1: could just, you know, watch from the sidelines and root her on. (laughs) Well, I don't think Dia will ever be on the sidelines. <laughs> um, like, but, but, and also, I, I, I have to say, I love this. I love this. Like, Nadia loved <laughs> like, this. Like, it's just kind of, can we do this episode? Like, a, like a segment? <laughs> like, Nadia loved this segment. So thank you, uh, Dia. That is very, um, I'm very touched by that. And it, it really means a lot. And I'm not just saying that. And I will also say that, you know, we love our parents, too. And I will say that, by default, immigrant parents aren't necessarily traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> it can be true. It can be true. That can sometimes happened. Uh, maybe all of our parents, in some ways, are traumatized. Uh, but I, I do traumatized want to. Say and deeply that. loving yes, and
2: caring,
0: yeah. you know. 100%. 100%. And I'm sure, yeah. listen, I do want to, I'm sure this is we've definitely year, traumatized yeah. our parents, right? Like, I, I know for a fact yeah. I've definitely traumatized my mother
1: throughout my lifetime. So, right. yeah. So. And my children are traumatizing my oldest son definitely traumatizes me <laughs> like constantly. He's sick. So um, maybe I'd say like I don't know if that's karma or he's taking after my mother. But like but but I just but I will say that, you know, you you know, Simi, you asked about kind of these some of some of these experiences which are shared maybe with, with, with both of you and me and maybe any listeners who might share some similar cultural uh, cultural backgrounds uh, or familial backgrounds. But you know, for me I know that when I was younger, I was always, you know, I mean, kids say, oh, like, I want to grow up and be a doctor. I want to grow up and be a ball player. Or, you know, you know, like kids have all of these. I love it. Like they're so imaginative and they're and, and they're passionate, too. But sometimes kids are just passionate but because they're kids. They're so excited about um, different wondrous things. But I will say that, you know, ever since I was little, I always wanted to be a hero. And I don't know what that meant. I was, I thought of that like as a night. You saw the Dis- maybe Disney movies or TV shows about, you know, the protagonist and they're kind of beating the bad guy and doing good things. So, what's one thing, even when you're a child, the protagonists of any uh, movie or cartoon or what have you, what, what is one thing they have in common, right? Yeah. They're kind, they're help- They're they're standing up to the bully, right? They're standing up to the dark forces. Like, I think that's so universal. Like, whether it be a Hindi movie, whether it be uh, uh, Star Wars, whether it be a cartoon, right? There's this this general kind of feeling of, like, this is what it means to be a kind, caring person, to be the hero. And I remember, for some reason, that really resonating with me, even before I understood things about social injustice so intimately. And I will also say, I do give my parents a lot of credit, because my mom always told me and you know she, for my parents are muslim and for my my mom she would always say you know to be muslim is to be of service like if you're muslim like the, oh the like and she and i'm not myself very religious but she would say things like oh the prophet muhammad like he took care of orphans and you know these these kinds of things that you should be yeah. kind to people like who don't have the privileges you have who don't have everything you have and i remember us going to bangladesh when i was little like i have like three or four i have very vivid memories of you know and bangladesh was even in a worse state that it was like yeah. in the 80s so it was Suppose, um, in a you know, um, going through just a lot of challenges as a nation, and seeing like really abject poverty, right? Um, and that's not all of Bangladesh, but that's I do that, that made an impression on me because it was different from me growing up in the United States, and seeing my dad even in Bangladesh, you know, he grew up maybe seeing this, still giving money to anybody who mm-hmm. came to him, like still treating people with kindness. I remember that those distinct memories. Um, I remember my mom telling me about people about like. She said, "You know, when I was in Bangladesh, there were children who were living on the streets. They didn't get to go to school. that didn't get to have food or had to work. They had to work when they're little because they, they, they have to make money for their family. They, they don't get to go to school. You're so lucky you get to read books. So honestly, I think she said this yeah. a lot because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember her saying this all the time. And and you know, it's funny. I didn't get annoyed. i annoyed by it. Kind of. I was just kind of like, okay, she's talking about this a lot, right?" But, I mean, it did sink in. And I think that for her, that was really important, that you have to always be of service, you have to always be kind, that you have to always be grateful about everything you have.
0: Yeah, and and the one thing you mentioned, like just talking about the things that your mom and dad had done in Bangladesh to help the community, it's just the power of community, right? And the importance of, and that's kind of generational too, right? Like you saw the power of community of how your mom and dad helped people, but that that also kind of came full circle for you later to the power of a community with people circling around and helping you guys with everything that your family had gone through um, with your dad's struggle with mental illness. And then um, I know you said we could speak about it on, on here, but just everything else he had gone through with discrimination, with the whole incarceration, right? And everything he went through, went through there. But the power of community of you saw firsthand how your parents gave back, You also saw firsthand how the community helped your family in a time of need, and it almost comes full circle, right? Because I feel like everything that you're doing kind of revolves around also giving back to the community, because just that importance of the power of community is so imperative. But in terms of everything that your family had gone through with your dad, do you feel like that kind of? pushed you further, like, a little harder in terms of everything that you're doing right now, in terms of your your career, all of your involvements in the different nonprofit organizations? Do you think that would have been different had things not transpired how they had? Or do you think that this is the Nadia that was going to be the Nadia she is today, regardless? Because sometimes those situations don't have a direct effect on your trajectory of where you are now, right? But do you think that had any impact on you in terms of when you decided to kind of go down this line in terms of your career?
1: Yeah, I mean I I always say I you know, the thing with something like incarceration, right? Which is a very traumatic event for anybody. I mean, if you're under 18, there's something called adverse a childhood mm-hmm. experiences and there's 10 things that are that psychologists and sociologists and researchers i mean this has been researched i mean now it's becoming major policy in states including here in new jersey um and also federally frankly it's informing our federal work you know aces say like these adverse childhood experiences most people have maybe one you know and, and but the more you have the more of an impact it has on your on your mental health on your chances of, you know, suicide yeah. on your income level. Even I mean, it really, I mean, it's not a doom and gloom thing, like dooming you to a certain, uh, a certain fate, but it is showing about really the impacts, uh, even societal yeah. impacts that that are long running on children. And, you know, mass incarceration is one of them, having an incarcerated parent. I was over 18 when my father was incarcerated. So I wasn't a child, I was in college. So I was just, I was maybe 21. So a little older, but kind of, you know, in your early 20s, if you're lucky enough, and I was in college, so I, I know a lot of ways I had privilege, I had access to an education, and I, you know, when I was, when I was um, in college, you're, at 21, you know, it's like, okay, maybe we're going to graduate, it's the next step mm-hmm. in your life, trying to figure out maybe a job, although, again, when I look at um, Generation Z, they have all my sympathies, I don't care if they hate my side part, and, like, my skinny things or whatever, I have all my because it's like, what do you do? Like are we, like when your our generation's been like set up to lose, yeah. right? And so I feel like that started with my generation, and it's continuing. And even with that, you know, the expectation was, oh my, I have my family, and I'm able to do this. So when uh, uh, something like a, like a nuclear bomb, like a like my father was suddenly right. incarcerated, right? He has mental illness too often. What is it, What is our mass incarceration system, right? It's not a system based on justice and nope, injustice. Not it's not all. a System based on crime prevention or improving society. It's act, It's a system of monetizing bodies yeah. in prisons to basically, um, up, basically, uh, you know, um, for mm-hmm. profit, for profit, for corporations by ta- by doing a dragnet on mentally ill and poor people and victims of sexual assault, especially if you're a woman, 90% of women in prisons are victims of sexual child, child sexual assault. And, and those are, that's, that's who, who populates our prisons and are in jails. And, you know, my father was arrested, they said for Medicaid fraud. Um, and he was severely mentally ill. That wasn't included in his case at all. He was it was post 9-11. He was a Muslim man in a small yeah. white town, a town where judges were literally put into prison after he was arrested for corruption because they were funneling children into prisons for money. Um, like literally judges were being put away into federal prison, like the Department of Justice intervened in our small town because of the corruption. And this was a and this was where it happened. And and I and I'm not ashamed of, you know, especially it's interesting in our culture, there can be so much shame of like, oh, my, I don't have this or this uh, yeah. Incident happened to my family. I am not ashamed about it because to me, I'm like he's mentally ill. Like a prison was the last place he right. should have been, right? For a supposed Medicaid fraud with no victims, and when white man who did worse than him got off and drove away in their Cadillacs, and he's the one rotting in prison. And so he served for three years when I was 21. And you know, we didn't expect that. I mean, my dad didn't have an unpaid parking ticket. He was a U.S. He was a veteran of the United States Army. He was a veteran of the National Guard. So he served our country. He served yeah. this nation. He served as he got his uh, residency in a VA hospital. I volunteered at a VA hospital in high school helping veterans. He he himself was a doctor in a prison, right? To get, like training yeah. prisoners. So he was a federal employee. I mean, this is somebody who like I said, didn't have an unpaid parking ticket, had no criminal record. And this is how he was repaid, right? Like when his mental illness put him in crisis, uh, instead of maybe getting a fine or, you know, at the worst, they could have taken away his license. No, like some, for some reason, taking him out of, uh, taking him in the, uh, incarcerating him for three years was somehow so what was best for him in yeah. this country. Um, it didn't make anybody safer. It was, but it was a great waste of taxpayer dollars, and yeah. which is what our mass incarceration system really is. And you know, I just, I just say all that background information for for people listening, just so they know what. No, we're it's in, it's about. important. It's um, important
0: because you you
1: also say it from firsthand experience, and that's why I brought it up
0: because I think it is just so important for people to really understand just the injustice that happens in this, right? Like people might read about it or hear about it, but I feel like just really explaining it directly is just extremely important for people listening to understand.
1: And you mentioned the model minority yeah. myth, and this is part it of is. that, it right? It is, it is, part absolutely. Of, because why the model minority myth is so is so um, malicious Yeah is because it is um, it is not just a myth it is a myth that has been invented by white supremacy and it's it's a myth that's been invented to render so many of our communities completely invisible and it's and it's a and it's a it's a devil's it's like a what's it called it's like a devil's bargain because when our community buys into it it can it it somehow gives gives maybe folks a false sense of well we're better than this group or we we're above mass incarceration we don't have to worry about undocumented immigration we don't have to worry about um you know being uh, uh, about poverty Mm -hmm. right we don't have to worry about low wages and and it's Uh, like so and in the end that invisibility you know like Renders us, um, you know, just renders us voiceless. It renders us, it just, it, it says that we don't matter, right? And that's why it's like telling this story, I think, is important because it's saying, no, like the way our carceral system is set up, it is set up as a dragnet. And what a dragnet does, whether that be police brutality, whether that be a mass incarceration, what it's a dragnet so that means if you're mentally ill and poor you or if you're brown or if you're like if you're melanin in your skin guess what you're going to be dragged through this don't don't just don't think oh well my model minority status is somehow going to keep me safe or it's going to give you me power a model minority status will never give you power you know so you know that's why I think sharing these stories, it, it is so powerful. And I know for myself, this experience, this trauma, I, w- I told this to, and I've been through so much therapy, so much, so much therapy. I love therapy. I told my therapist this. I'm like, you know what? When I went through that trauma, it's almost just like I felt like I was living my life and then something happened like in a sci-fi movie and I ended up in a mm-hmm. parallel universe that yeah. wasn't meant to me. Like I was like, there was Nadia going, it's almost like, you know, like back yeah. to the future when they go back and then, and they're like, they're like in this timeline. And then suddenly so they're in the yeah. timeline where he's the billionaire. Sorry for anybody watching that movie. <laughs> I think it's a pretty popular movie. I know what I'm talking about. I would like I was yeah. in the Biff timeline, right? And this is before Trump was elected, but it was like still the Biff timeline. And I was like, be, like bewildered. Like what is happening? Like losing all of my financial capacity of my family. We, they, they, we, we basically had our money stolen by a lawyer, $40,000, $40, because we didn't even know that we need to go to a criminal lawyer. We were going injury lawyers. That's how clueless we were, because we have never had an issue with the law. We had no idea where to go. Right? I wasn't on the board of the ACLU yet. I didn't know... What my rights were i was i was an activist already that was that i was already an activist in in rutgers i cared about being a do-gooder i wanted to you know work on human rights already that's that that was there already um i had already gone through challenges with my family because of mental illness and being in and out of economic different economic situations and facing racism but this was like a whole new ball game for me, right? Like this was again, throw, it's like throwing me off a cliff into a parallel universe, and now I had to navigate my life in this crazy parallel universe that I was like, what am I doing? Like how do I get back to my timeline? I don't know how to get back to my timeline. You know, moving into housing, having no money. I had to take out all these predatory student loans to even finish college, right? Because my dad was helping me with school. and they, which things I'm still paying off $600 dollars a month for an undergrad degree. and, and, I, and I for a long time, mm-hmm. it's like I couldn't get that footing how do I get back to my, it's like, I'm like, how do I get back to my, my universe? Like, how do I get, like I'm in the wrong, like I'm in sliders or something. Like, how do I get back to my earth? I'm in alternate earth. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. And it took me the longest time to finally adjust and, and, and feel like, okay, no, I'm not an alternate earth. This is actually my reality. And that, that was maybe a coping mechanism. But what that did was I wouldn't say it necessarily strengthened my resolve to do human rights work. I, I think what I did was, you know, I mentioned in the beginning how I'm living on my own terms. I think it forced me mm-hmm. even more so to live on my own terms because the terms that maybe I had expected or like, I'm like, what would my life have been? Like if my dad was healthy and we live in a nice, nice big house, and he's a doctor and we have a nice car and I was able to just pay for college. And I didn't have childhood trauma that interfered with my ability to take an LSAT, right? Like, what would that look like? Would I still be living on my own terms? Or would I, because I was able to go to a law school and not have that trauma and have that money to go where I needed to go, maybe I would be living mm-hmm. on their terms, right? I, so, you know, for a while I was so so angry and, and devastated for, for being in this alternative universe an alternate universe that, that, but now I feel like, you know, not that it worked out, but, but no, I'm in the right universe. You know, trauma, people need to understand that trauma is very severe and our minds and our bodies work really hard to grapple with it. And that looks different for different people. But in the end, what it did for me, is it? Is it turned me into Batman? Right? It gave me this backstory, like you know, Batman is who the who who he is because his parents were like murdered in front of him, and now he's like Batman, and then he's like that, like led him to his life of you know badassery and vigilanteism. And I am not a vigilante; I <laughs> work within the law. Um, but but I but I will say it's like yeah. that's what it's done. It's like I went through horrible experience. That I would never wish on anybody. And it's happening to every, every single day. It is happening to families around the country, especially black and brown and poor families. And I feel like this world is full of Batman villains and I am now Batman and I have a lot yeah. of work to do.
2: There's a couple of things I want to mirror back. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. And I and I really appreciate how your story is a robust one, you know, In in our previous episode where we talk about who we are and what we brought to the work, we talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how we're whole women. And I just think, you know, this time with you, Nadia, just just screams, you are a whole woman, you know, and so I really appreciate that. And there's a couple of things that I want to mirror back that I find so powerful. One is, you know, the model minority myth, right? The the lie and the insidious nature of it. Um, growing up, I thought, well, I don't know someone who's incarcerated. And that's just, I reject that. That's false. It's not that we didn't know people growing up that were incarcerated. It was that we were never allowed to talk about it. That That's the truth of it. Not that we didn't know people in our community that had been swept up in this dragnet to your point. So I just like really wanted to call that out. And I think you touch upon like the systematic dehumanization of the carceral system and the carceral continuum. And there is no restoration, there is no repair, there is no healing. And the blowback in the dragnet to use your term that I like so much is it extends beyond the person so you and your family experienced significant trauma even though you were not the ones confined to the four walls of the prison right and so you talked a little bit about finding your footing and what what did that look like for you like what what tools what community what resources each other like what did that look like how did you and your family kind of take stock of what you were thrown at being thrown off this cliff to your point and, and kind of find your way back to, to the light, you know, to use a dramatic term,
1: you know, finding, finding my footing, I couldn't find until my father was released from prison uh, because the trauma was just too, like we, visited him as often as we could, you know, we, my mom went to see him every week and even just the, even though he was in a minimum security prison, it was just the, the, process of trying to see someone in a minimum security prison even is so dehumanizing in itself and also you know he was almost beaten to death by prison guards in prison they said he fell in the shower and other prisoners told him like no you were like beaten up in the shower and I, when i saw him after that you know his whole head was purple his you know, a hairline fracture on his arm which would be like a defensive wound i'm like you must think i was born freaking yesterday if you think that this man like did he fall out of the shower and then out of three stories and that's, and again, we see these stories, right? When it comes to things like what's happening with police brutality, what's happening in the ma- in, in mass incarceration system, mentally ill men left to like literally boil alive in their in their in their mm-hmm. jail cell, or being held down so they can't breathe. And nobody would have believed it if it wasn't on videos. Communities have been telling us, black communities have been telling us for generations that this is happening, and it's like, no, it's not. You're lying. Like the police are the good guys. The people, in like you said, Simi, um, that's uh, even there's a narrative, right? That well, the bad guys are in jail. Our community's good. We're doctors, we're lawyers, yeah. we're business owners. We're like going, you know, like we're stand up citizens. Like we don't get divorced, we don't let all these yeah. things, right? Like no, we're good. We're good here. We're all good. Those are white people problems. Those yeah. are black people problems. That's a Mexican problem. That's a this problem, right? Like that's a yeah. That's that's um, they're not Muslim or they're not Hindu, yeah. and this, so this is a, that's their problem. It's a personal failing, right? They're, they don't care about education. They don't care about not getting pregnant when they're teenagers, right? Yeah. Like all of these like myths and and again, it's a perpetuation of white supremacy, right? It's a perpetuation of so many things um, that are actually not in, I, I, that are not um, things that necessarily we we've we've come up with necessarily, yeah. right? Um, even though there's I'm not, let's be real, our communities have drama within themselves. So I'm not gonna act like it's a rainbow coalition, but I, but you know, going through all of that and experience and experiencing you know all of that when that's happening and when I was, you know, and my family and I are close, you know, it was impossible to get footing. And so I felt very much untethered for a very long time. And I, and I, and I will say like a very good, I use a lot of symbolism in my life, probably from a lot of journal writing. But um, for me, it's like, I felt like I almost like, was a doll, like a porcelain doll, like Frankenstein's monster, right? Like I was a whole person and someone like tore me apart and then like sewn me back together very quickly. So I just felt like, even though what, People in front of me saw was like it's a bright, happy, bubbly, like, you know, 21 year old, 22, 23 year old who was like talk fast and excited and was friendly and, you know, going to parties and acting like if you saw me, you would never think anything was wrong. You might even think I have all the privileges in the world, like brown girl, like, you know, a college educated, like supposedly my dad's a doctor. But I felt like I was just a fractured person. Yeah. Like, I didn't feel like a whole person to me. I felt like I was a uh, Frankenstein's monster, like a, like parts of a whole somehow yeah. sewn together very, in a very shoddy way. Right? Like a rag doll that the arm falls off and you got to, like, stick it back yeah. on somehow. Like, that's how I felt for three years. And so I had no footing because my body itself did not feel like it was my body. And what got me out with well, the tools that got me out of that were things like, um, PTSD therapy, like um, EMDR, for example, like that is a, that Mm -hmm. is a tool that is a cognitive tool for trauma therapy. Um, and, another, and I will say the biggest thing, how I even was able to access mental health help was my, my college professor and his wife took me in. They, when I, I came to him one day out in college and said, Hey, I need a job. And he's like, why are you like, he's like, why are you worrying about getting a job? Like an internship? Like you're smart. You're like, you know, you have all these other things. And when I told him the story of my dad, like the very nonchalant, oh, my dad's in prison and now we're like in public housing and I have no money. Um, like I might be homeless if I don't get a job. Right. (laughs) So he's like, okay, wait, wait, what? Like, like, I think it was with, like, Indian princess who had like, you know, like a, like a benz or something. Cause it's Rutgers. a lot of people in Benz's. Like, I'm not one of them, but lots of people in Benz's and like the Beamers, right? And so I was like, and and he was like, uh and, no, I want to make sure it's like it wasn't. Yeah, no, it was but just, it, like, it, like I that a lot. No, I would it, even but but we all that, did, right?
0: right? I mean, we we right. as brown people are even guilty of that, right? So it's not being a lot of affluence.
2: I, well, I would like to put it on the record that I never had had owned in my family a mercedes-benz more do i <laughs> neither. aspire I it it freedom,
1: to right that's why it doesn't
2: yes, i if it's not if it's not a, it goes from toyota corolla <laughs> right. to Benz yeah. or yes, bmw right like to to Benz <laughs> like and his, bmw yeah and his wife they took me in right yeah. and
1: they just did they took me in and i live with this like united nations household and that's what him and his wife they they took in kids who need the college students who needed support. And it sounds, it might even sound weird or creepy or unusual, but it wasn't any of those things. Like, you know, it wasn't like a sister, it wasn't like a sister-wife situation at all. It was very, <laughs> uh, it, it was very, it was actually very. Beautiful yeah. and um, you know that gave me stability when I didn't have that yeah. footing. So I will say when I didn't have footing, I borrowed footing from other people, and they were my you know Michael and Eva Chan. I them like Michael Schaefer and Eva Schechter, They were my footing, and they paid for my therapy. They're like, you need therapy. They're like, you need therapy. And I did take therapy before, but at the time I didn't really know mm-hmm. where to go. Right? It can be. I think it's one expensive, and I'm like this broke college student. And so yeah, the mental health support. But you mentioned community and I wanted to go back to that, Dia, because you know, community isn't just our brown people. Community, I think, is whatever it yeah. means to you. I feel like there's no definition of yeah. community. It can be global, it can be online, mm-hmm. it can be your neighbors, it can be your home, it could be your family, it could be the opposite yeah. of your family. Maybe your family's not, not totally your community. Um, and it's and and so I feel like they were community for me like they were part of this community uh that i that i developed at rutgers and even though at home there was a community like my parents moss that frankly got them food and things like that like my mom food and like supported her and bought her food and and also like my sister's best friends were so supportive of her like they 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 literally were the ones who called her when they saw my dad getting hauled up to prison on TV. Yeah. That's how our family found out. They don't get phone calls. It was on our local news. And so that's how we found out. So those, her friends saw it yeah. happen right before she did. And they were there for her. They were her rock. And I feel like there was each one of us—my mom, my sister, and I. There's three. There's, there's the three of us. I don't have any other siblings. We had this community, um, and I was great. I was grateful that even amongst all of this happening, that my mom did have like right. this mosque community, this Bangladeshi community there, that knew what was happening. And of course, it was like shameful. I mean, that's how it. Like, I mean, even you don't have to be Bangladeshi to see going to prison as a shameful thing because of that's right. How the narrative of it but even then like my dad's my dad's medical school friends sent him new york times articles they literally would just send us money they and just, they wouldn't even like make a big deal they would just send us money to like buy yeah. clothes right and and that's why when i do work with like Baudi, which is like the bangladeshi american women's development initiative in case people are like what is a Baudi? um it's a it's a bangladeshi women's group like when we when i do that work or any other work i always say that this is not a transactional right. thing. This is not me being charitable. I even when to like, I like we do what, like when you do deliveries of like, mm-hmm. food or, or COVID relief or, or gift cards um, for folks who are undocumented and can't pay rent, like when we're facilitating these things or eid gifts for children in need, I say like, I'm like, th- you know, you said thank you. You're welcome. Right. right. I will always say you're welcome, but I'm like, you know, we need to help each other right? Like it's, if it when, it, when it becomes a hierarchical, a hierarchy, it is yeah. disempowering, right? It's about, Oh, pat me on the back. Cause I'm helping pull oh, yeah. you down there going right. through this, but that I cannot relate to. And I think that that is so, um, opposite of helping, uh, it's dehumanizing. And I feel like what needs to happen is people realize that we all have multifaceted lives. We never know what's going to happen. Yes. We have different privileges and access points, but, when it comes down to it, it's, it it should be about a community really is about helping each other. Like when you're having a need, I can be there for you. If I have a need, you can be there for me. It's not about pride. It's not about showing off how great I am for like, or how magnanimous I am. Because if you're doing it out of magnanimity, it's not coming from an authentic place. And would you want someone to come to you saying, I'm being so magnanimous with this, right? Because we all have dignity. And I think that there really is something to be said about that you can always have human dignity, whether you need help or you're yeah. giving help.
0: No, and that's important. And I, and you made such a good point about that. Cause I feel like when people giving back is glorified, it bothers me, right? Like for, it's like, you should be giving back and helping people that need help or just giving back to the community because you're doing it for the good, not to be glorified, not to be given an award, not to brag about it, not to, it. That's not coming from the right place, right? And another example you gave in terms of community, sometimes that community is friends, right? Like, I can say personally for me, my community is not my family. I mean, mine is my mother, right? But outside of my mom, it's not. I'm not, I'm, it's absolutely not. Like, they're not my go to, whereas my close circle of friends are my community, right? And it's different for everybody. Like, for you, you were fortunate to have this couple take you in and be there for you. And they were your community. So it is that. that's why I mentioned that earlier. I just feel like just that power of community is defined so differently for everybody. There's no one definition for community. It can literally be anybody. It could be a person you just met, who's, you know, there for you, who you entrust. Um, but But that whole glorification of giving back has just always kind of bothered me. So I'm glad you kind of mentioned that because I feel like we see so much of that, right? We do see a lot of that just within, not to go down that road of like celebrities, but we do, right? Like, I mean, it is continuously like this glorified thing. And I just have such appreciation for people that are more anonymous with things they're doing to give back to the community because that's coming from the right place. And anything can happen to any of us any day. I mean, we might have certain privileges today that can be gone tomorrow. We might not have certain privileges today that we'll get tomorrow, right? Um, and I think we just all have to be, and we're all guilty for taking many things for granted. No, anyone would be lying if they said that they're not, or they've never taken anything for granted. But I think we all do have to be cognitive of the fact that we we sh- should try to not take too many things for granted. And I think that humility is just so important for everybody. And just, you know, it's easier to be kind. Like you mentioned earlier, Nadia, like you were like, what's the main thing? Like the hero, like they're kind, right? Like I I always feel like it's easier to be kind than be mean. Like I feel like being mean just takes so much more energy than just just be nice, right? Be neutral. But just to get onto that other side is just, um, it just takes a lot more energy.
2: I will die on the hill that there's a lot in our South Asian history, I mean, over like centuries and thousands of years, that really is mutual aid, right? It really is about like a voluntary reciprocity of care that leads to political action. And so like, you know, here, Nadia, that you live that in your life, to me, actually, like, Honors our ancestors in the most beautiful ways because I think so much of our history is is that of course mired by violence and strife and lots of other things but to me that that I think is is rooted deeply in like our South Asian ancestry. Um, I want to like again just thank you so much Nadia for carving out time and space to engage in this conversation with us. Um, and I really appreciated your radical honesty the entire time. And I take away this idea that you you really have committed your life to carving out your path, curating your community to your point into Diaz. Like it looks different at different moments, but you are thoughtful and mindful about who you're bringing into your community and how you're supporting them, right? And the power of resilience and intentionality, just like, you know, we can just feel it even in this conversation with you. And then the realities of the trauma and the adverse experiences that you and your family face and and the layers of impact with that, within that, as it relates specifically to the carceral continuum in this country and, you know, the for-profit industrial complex. One thing that D and I do is we ground ourselves in gratitude practice, and for me as a Punjabi Sikh, it's it's rooted in the idea of Chardikala, which re- roughly translates this idea of like ever rising spirits and optimism, and it's a huge pillar of our mindset as 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 um, Sikhs. And D and I both practice gratitude in very different ways, but we're committed to it, and so we thought. Um, we would throw that kind of rapid fire question out to you of what are you? You've, you've lived a life a thousand times over so far and have so much more of a journey to traverse. Um, what are you most grateful for in this moment right now?
1: So, am I saying one thing or three things? Like, I don't know if it's like one thing, I don't know. Like, <laughs> three more, <laughs> 10, however many you want. I don't know more why. In my head. So you like, get maybe it's like decide. a nice magic number. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm. I'm grateful for many things, but I will say, you know, I, you know, especially in this time of pandemic, right. It's still a time of pandemic. Like we're not out of it yet. We don't still know what it was. We, we still don't know exactly what this looks like this moment in our history, in our communities, in our homes, outside our homes. And I will say during this pandemic time of being home, I was, you know, I, I did, I think I practiced gratitude every day, but not necessarily as you practice. It was just kind of like something I just did. It wasn't something I noticed. I sat and made, time for or penciled into my schedule or anything. But I, I will say that the three things I've been grateful for is, you know, one, I'm always grateful for peace um, in my life. Like I'm, I'm grateful to be living in a, in a household with peace, you know? Um, and, and I don't, and I don't take it for granted. I, I don't think it'll always be this way necessarily, but I have it now and I haven't always had it in my life. So I am grateful for peace, um, whether that be, you know, freedom from incarceration, like, peace from incarceration, peace from growing, uh, like living in a household with, like, that's just like over, overcome with mental illness constantly. Um, like my husband and I, you know, we have a trustful, peaceful marriage. Like it's just a peaceful marriage. It's not volatile, it's not a, It's not a violent, it is just peaceful. And um, I am grateful for peace. I'm grateful to live in a house that is peace. I am grateful to live in a community with nature and, and peace in my community that is not something that everybody has access to. And I am personally grateful for that, um, that I have that. Um, I'm also grateful for, I am grateful for my children. I'm grateful that I get to watch them grow. I'm grateful that I have living children. I I know so many people who have faced many tragedies Mm -hmm. and I am always grateful that I get to wake up with them every day and that they're healthy and I'm grateful for my health. Actually, I'm very. I think sometimes it's like you don't. People aren't really grateful for their health until they have a health problem because it's just so easy to just take it for granted. You get up, you walk, you do this, you, you go here, you're, you you wake you wake up every morning expecting to live that day, right? Yeah. Like you just kind of um, you know. And I and I'm I'm always. I mean, I'm always like, oh, I want to lose the baby weight, which I totally want to do. But I'm so so grateful for my health. Um, and that is something that once it's taken away, it takes away sometimes everything, right? So those are the things I'm grateful for. Yeah. No, thanks so much for sharing that. And like,
0: like Simi said, like, that's just something even this past year, I think pre this pandemic era that we're living in right now, right? um, I didn't take gratitude as seriously as I did this past year. I think it was eye-opening for everybody to a certain degree. Um, I was still grateful for things to a certain point, but Sime and I did really do that this past year. Like we really were holding ourselves accountable for, you know, being vocal about what we're grateful for and, and and practicing gratitude. But thank you, Nadia, so, so much for just being a complete open book with us and just giving Simi and I the opportunity to talk with you today um, and just sharing everything that you did with us. Um, I know people listening, it was extremely informative for them, You know, whether they're in these situations or they know someone in these situations or have been through these situations um, and just everything that you do to just really spread awareness and continuing to give back into the community. And I know that I speak for myself and Simi when I say that we're just really, really looking forward to seeing what the future has in store for you because I know this is literally just the, just the beginning for you.
1: Thank you both so much. And I wanted to really be grateful to both of you for creating this space because I know growing up, I didn't, you know, obviously podcasts weren't a thing yet. Right. But seeing content being created by Brown women, uh, for brown women, and also just for everybody who is willing to listen, a podcast yeah. is just out there in the you know multi. There's
0: so many. There's so many podcasts. Know, but, you but might but get you know, the, the world of podcasting, <laughs> like whether it be
1: like a YouTube channel, a podcast, whether it be like yeah. social, like social media posts, like it's yeah, there can be like a downside to some of that, unfortunately, too. But I think yeah. the upside is that it's given us platforms, right? To like share our stories that maybe otherwise wouldn't be shared. Maybe this is not what the mainstream media is gonna keep showing, of course not. But we carve our own spaces out. So I wanna thank you both for carving out a space and sharing these stories and just putting it out there and seeing who will listen to it. And you you really don't know who will relate to it um, and who will feel heard because they're able to hear this.
0: No, but really Nadia, thank you so incredibly much for your time today. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Burfi and Bubbles, where we will be posting takeaways from this episode, as well as details about guests on our upcoming episodes. So until next time, stay blessed.